Good evening and welcome to the first Shoreditch House Literary Salon of 2012! <laughs> very, very exciting to have you here. Very, very, very exciting indeed. It's been some time. Uh, so congratulations on getting in um, and commiserations to the, the poor people on the street who arrived late. I mean what I say, clipboard face. This is my kind of clipboard serious face. Well done for all of you for getting here early. And um, particularly the people who've come here and who've actually got air miles for coming here. The people who've come from abroad um, and are one wonderful man who always comes from Swindon, who I love. <laughs> Round of applause for him, actually. <laughs> he books, he gets, he gets, um, he gets, he gets an advanced rail ticket and he goes to a matinee in the afternoon and he comes to the salon in the evening. I literally love him. Now, you cannot fail to have noticed um, that it has been the 200th birthday of one Charles Dickens. Um, Dickens here, Dickens there, Dickens every bloody where, complained the wonderful John Sutherland, who's here, ladies and gentlemen, yesterday's guardian, round of applause for him. He was all kind of like, me, 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 me. And then at the end of it, it says, and his latest book is the, Diction the Dickens Dictionary. And I was like, oh. Great. Um, so among all the talk of social realism, um, Victorian London and winsome orphans and wicked villains, you may have missed the fantastic news that Tulisa uh, Contestavlos has, that, I'm sure that's the right way of saying her name, <laughs> has just signed a six-figure three-book deal. The X Factor judge said, I'm really excited to start work on these books. Having my novels published is a dream come true for me. I'm also looking forward to sharing my life story so far. I've got lots to tell. Watch out, Dickens. And uh, no doubt she'll be taking writing tips from Pippa Middleton, who I understand has sketched out a few chapters. From one Middleton, ooh, to the other. Here is Kate gracing the cover of Tatler. And look in the middle, who's there? Who's there? All of you, and it's us. It is O-B-E-O-M-G, and David Nichols, who is there, and David Gilmore, who is at home, and Helen Fielding, and John Waters. So a special welcome to all the Tatler readers who are here tonight. And thank you, Salon Star, Alexandra Hemsley, for the fantastic piece, and Claire Bennett. Tatler people, this is what they call East London, all right? So, so welcome, and thank you for parking your horses safely. Yes, it's the first Salon of the year, um, and we are now available on iTunes, which is just so exciting. I know as of this morning, we were the second most downloaded post podcast, postcard, three Manhattans, podcast. We were the second most downloaded literary podcast. And all I thought was, oh, I hope this hasn't made Judy drink again because we overtook the Richard and Judy book club. Um, <laughs> and I really did feel sad about that for a while. About a minute. About a minute. Only Dickens beat us, but it was Dickens' birthday, so, you know, in case we didn't know. Anyway, enough self-congratulations to tonight's salon, which I'm very excited about. We have three amazing guests. Give them a round of applause. They are Jojo Moyes, John Crace, and Patrick Gale. All three of them, all three of them are reading new stuff for the very first time, which, which may mean that we kind of slightly peaked too soon, but it's all new stuff for the first time. I've read it all, you haven't. Let me tell you, you're in for a treat. So to our first guest, Jojo Moyes is growing comfortable in the top 10 bestseller list for her ninth novel. Jojo, just shout out the number. How many weeks is it? Five! Five weeks in the bestseller list. So, so tonight she returns to the salon to read from me before you. I was going to say for the very first time, she actually did read, um, read from it at, um, at my reading weekend, but this is her first kind of super big mega public reading. Um, some people are enjoying getting a little bit judgy about the book. They're going to say parts of it are in poor taste, particularly the love-struck suicidal quadriplegic, but 
knowing you as I do, you're going to think it is what I think it is, which is darkly funny and deeply moving. I cried um, at the end, so please welcome Jojo Moyes. Right. Um, this isn't a book in poor taste, neither is it a how-to guide to going to Dignitas and ending your life. It is a book that I secretly suspected would end my career. Um, you know, I did a little dance about being in the top ten. I can tell you this is my ninth book, and I have never made it remotely anywhere near the top ten. And the fact that I did is partly um, because of Richard and Judy. I won't hear a word against them, thank you very much. Um, and partly because I joined my new publishers, who are Penguin, who um, are, frankly, fucking fantastic. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a book that... Um, when I put it this way, I described it to my hairdresser, and I said, I'm writing this book, and I'm out of contract, and it's about a quadriplegic who wants to go to Dignitas, and the carer who decides to change his mind. And he just looked at me like, okay. And I got quite used to that look as I wrote the book. Um, but people will tell you, when you write a book, you can only write the book that's in you. Because if you write the book that somebody wants you to write, it doesn't work. And believe me, having written 12 books, and having just deleted the best part of 200,000 words while writing my 10th book, um, I can tell you it only works if it's coming from there. And this book is a really weird book. It shouldn't have made the top 10. It's, it's a love story between this quadriplegic and his carer. It's got a lot of dark humour in it, so if you're likely to be offended, um, don't buy it. But what it basically has at its heart is an awful lot of love. Uh, and that sounds really soppy, but I don't care because that's how it is. Anyway, um, I haven't read this at length to people who are not blindingly drunk after a really good dinner. So if I go on, um, just start, I don't know, fainting or waving your hands at the back or something. This is the scene where Lou, who is, um, who's just been made redundant from her job uh, at a cafe where she's worked for seven years. She's not qualified for anything else. Um, she's basically done the usual run round of chicken factories and um, McDonald's type jobs uh, through the DSS and finally she's ended up um, in the one job that she really didn't want to do which is as carer to um, a quadriplegic. She'd always said that that was the one thing she didn't want to do. This is her first day um, when she meets Will's mother who is showing her what the job entails. This is the annex. It used to be stables, but we realised it would suit Will rather better than the house, as it's all on one floor. This is the spare room, so that Nathan can stay over if necessary. We needed someone quite often in the early days. Mrs Trainer walked briskly down the corridor, gesturing from one doorway to the other, without looking back, her high heels clacking on the flagstones. There seemed to be an expectation that I would keep up. The keys to the car are here. I've put you on our insurance. I'm trusting the details you gave me were correct. Nathan should, should be able to show you how the ramp works. All you have to do is uh, help Will position properly and the vehicle will do the rest. Although he's not desperately keen to go anywhere at the moment. It is a bit chilly out, I said. Mrs Trainer didn't seem to hear me. You can make yourself tea and coffee in the kitchen. I keep the cupboard stocked. The bathroom is through here. She opened the door and I stared at the white metal and plastic hoist that crouched over the bath. There was an open wet area under the shower with a folded wheelchair beside it. In the corner, a glass-fronted cabinet revealed neat stacks of shrink-wrapped bales. I couldn't see what they were from here, but it all gave off a faint scent of disinfectant. 
Mrs. Trainer closed the door and turned briefly to face me. I should reiterate, it's very important that Will has someone with him at all times. A previous carer disappeared for several hours once to get her car fixed, and Will injured himself in her absence. She swallowed as if still traumatized by the memory. I won't go anywhere. Mrs. Trainer opened the hall cupboard. She spoke like someone reciting a well-rehearsed speech. I wondered briefly how many carers there had been before me. If Will is occupied, it would be helpful if you could do some basic housekeeping. Wash bedding, run a vacuum cleaner around, that sort of thing. The cleaning equipment is under the sink. He may not want you around him all the time. You and he will have to work out your level of interaction for yourselves. Mrs. Trainer looked at my clothes as if for the first time. I was wearing the very shaggy waistcoat that Dad says makes me look like an emu. I tried to smile. It seemed like an effort. Obviously, I would hope that you could get on with each other. It would be nice if he could think of you as a friend rather than a paid professional. Right. Um, what does he like to do? Uh, he watches films. Sometimes he listens to the radio or to music. He has one of those digital things. If you position it near his hand, he can usually manipulate it himself. He has some movement in his fingers, although he finds it hard to grip. I felt myself brightening. If you like music and films, surely we could find some common ground. I had a sudden picture of myself and this man laughing at some Hollywood comedy, or me running the hoover around the bedroom while he listened to his music. Perhaps this was going to be okay. Perhaps we might end up as friends. I'd never had a disabled friend before. Only Treen's friend David, who was deaf, but would put you in a headlock if you suggested that meant disabled. Do you have any questions? No. Then let's go and introduce you. She glanced at her watch. Nathan should have finished dressing him by now. We hesitated outside the door and Mrs. Trainer knocked. Are you in there? I have Miss Clark to meet you, Will. There was no answer. Will? Nathan? A broad New Zealand accent. He's decent, Mrs. T. She pushed open the door. The annex's living room was deceptively large, one wall consisting entirely of glass doors that looked out over open countryside. A wood burner glowed quietly in the corner and a low beige sofa faced a huge flat-screen television, its seats covered by a wool throw. The mood of the room was tasteful and peaceful, kind of Scandinavian bachelor pad. In the centre of the room stood a black wheelchair, its seat and back cushioned by sheepskin. A solidly built man in a white collarless scrub was crouching down, adjusting a man's feet on the footrests of the wheelchair. As we stepped into the room, the man in the wheelchair looked up from under shaggy, unkempt hair. His eyes met mine, and after a pause, he let out a blood-curdling groan. His mouth twisted and he let out another unearthly cry. I felt his mother stiffen. Will, stop it. He didn't even glance towards her. Another prehistoric sound emerged from somewhere near his chest. It was a terrible, agonizing noise. I tried not to flinch. The man was grimacing, his head tilted and sunk into his shoulders as he stared at me through contorted features. He looked grotesque and vaguely angry. I realized that where I held my bag, my knuckles had turned white. Will, please. There was a faint note of hysteria in his mother's voice. Please don't do this. Oh, God, I thought, I'm not up to this. I swallowed hard. The man was still staring at me. He seemed to be waiting for me to do something. I'm Lou. My voice, uncharacteristically tremulous, broke into the silence. I wondered briefly whether to hold out a hand, and then, remembering that he wouldn't be able to take it, gave a feeble wave instead. Short for Louisa. Then, to my astonishment, his features cleared and his head straightened on his shoulders. Will Trainer gazed at me steadily, the faintest of smiles flickering across his face. <coughs> Good morning, Miss Clark, he said. I hear you're my latest minder. Nathan had finished adjusting the footrests. He shook his head as I stood up. You are a bad man, Mr T, very bad. 
He grinned and held out a broad hand, which I shook limply. Nathan exuded an air of unflappability. I'm afraid you just got Will's best Christy Brown. You'll get used to him. His bark is worse than his bite. Mrs. Trainer was holding the cross at her neck with slim white fingers. She moved it backwards and forwards along its thin gold chain, a nervous habit. Her face was rigid. I'll leave you all to get on. You can call through using the intercom if you need help. Nathan will talk you through Will's routines and his equipment. I'm here, Mother. You don't have to talk across me. My brain isn't paralysed yet. Yes, well, if you're going to be foul, Will, I think it's best if Miss Clark does talk directly to Nathan. His mother wouldn't look at him as she spoke. She kept her gaze about ten feet away on the floor. I'm working from home today, so I'll pop in at lunchtime, Miss Clark. Okay. My voice emerged as a squawk. Mrs. Trainer disappeared. We were silent while we listened to her clipped footsteps disappearing down the hall towards the main house. Then Nathan broke the silence. You mind if I go and talk Miss Clark through your meds, Will? You want the television, some music? Radio 4, please, Nathan. Sure. We walked through to the kitchen. Okay, I'll keep it fairly simple for today. There's a folder here that tells you everything you need to know about Will's routines, all his emergency numbers. I'd advise you to read it if you get a spare moment, and I'm guessing you'll have a few. Nathan took a key from his belt and opened a locked cabinet, which was full of boxes and small plastic canisters. Right. This lot is mostly my bag, but you do need to know where everything is in case of emergencies. There's a timetable there on the wall so you can see what he has on a daily basis. Any extras you give him, you mark here, but you're best to clear anything through Mrs. T, at least at this stage. I didn't realise I was going to have to handle drugs. Ah, it's not hard. He mostly knows what he needs, but he might need a little help getting them down. We tend to use this beaker here, or you can crush them with this pestle and mortar and put them in a drink. I picked up one of the labels. I wasn't sure I'd ever seen so many drugs outside a pharmacy. Okay, so he has two meds for blood pressure, this to lower it at bedtime, this to raise it when he gets out of bed. These he needs fairly often to control his muscular spasms. You'll need to give him one mid-morning and again at mid-afternoon. He doesn't find those too hard to swallow because they're the coated ones. These are for bladder spasms, these are for acid reflux. He sometimes needs these after eating if he gets uncomfortable. This is his antihistamine for the morning, and these are his nasal sprays, but I mostly do these last thing before I leave, so you shouldn't have to worry. He can have paracetamol if he's in pain, and he does have the odd sleeping pill, but these tend to make him irritable in the day, so we tend to restrict them. These, he held up another bottle, are the antibiotics he has every two weeks for his catheter change. I do those unless I'm away, in which case I'll leave clear instructions. They're pretty strong. There are boxes of rubber gloves if you need to clean him up at all. There's also cream if he gets sore, but he's been pretty good since we got the air mattress. As I stood there, he reached into his pocket and handed another key to me. This is the spare, he said, not to be given to anyone, not even Will, okay? Guard it with your life. It's a lot to remember, I swallowed. Ah, it's all written down. All you need to remember for today are his anti-spasm meds, those ones. There's my mobile number. I'm studying when I'm not here, so I'd rather not be called too often, but feel free till you feel confident. I stared at the folder in front of me. It felt like I was about to sit an exam I hadn't prepared for. What if he needs to go to the loo? I thought of the hoist. I'm not sure I could, um, you know, lift him. I tried not to let my face betray my panic. Nathan shook his head. You don't need to do any of that. His catheter takes care of that. I'll be in at lunchtime to change it all. You're not here for the physical stuff. What am I here for? Nathan studied the floor before he looked at me. Try and cheer him up a little. He's a little cranky. Understandable given the circumstances, but you're going to have to have a fairly thick skin. That little skit this morning, it's his way of getting you off balance. This is why the pay is so good, yeah? Oh, yes. No such thing as a free lunch, eh? Nathan clapped me on the shoulder. I felt my body reverberate, reverberate with it. 
Ah, he's all right. You don't have to pussyfoot around him. He hesitated. I like him. He said it like he might be the only person who did. So, five weeks in the top ten? I know. Five weeks. Um, I, I was looking at the reviews today, um, and, I mean, it's, it's kind of like you've paid your entire family to go and write the best possible things about I did. books. I did. Uh, you did. Well, it worked, because it's stuff like, please buy and read this book with about 20 exclamation marks um, after it. It really is impressive stuff, but it doesn't have bestseller written all over it as a premise. I mean, you said you were talking about that to your hairdresser, and when we spoke about it when you did Last Letter from Your Lover, I was thinking, really? How are you going to go there? What are you going to do? Um, and you wrote it out of contract, right? Mm -hmm. So you, this is the book you, that you took to Penguin and said... Yeah, this is know. a book I didn't know if it was going to find a publisher, um, and I took it to Penguin, and thank God, you know, they saw the potential. But, funny enough, my agent just had lunch with the MD, who admitted that she couldn't see how this was going to sell anything. She said it's such a weird premise. But um, weirdly, you know, after nine books, it's outsold pretty much all the rest of them. What, did, what, did you, what was the... How many books was Penguin? What's the deal? Uh, two. I'm just okay. writing the second okay. now. Okay. So that, and this book was inspired by a, a real-life case, the case of Daniel James. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of you remember, but there was a case... Uh, oh, God, it was a couple of years ago now, about a, 20, a young 20-something rugby player called Daniel James who whose parents agreed to take him to Dignitas. And I heard this story on the radio, and it really upset me. Um, I, I kept thinking, how could any parent agree to take their child to Dignitas? It just it goes against everything that you feel as a parent. And Well, you thought they were doing the wrong thing. Yeah, and I was quite judgy about it, in the way that only mothers can be about other mothers. you know. And, um, and then I... I don't know, I suppose it's the ex-journalist in me, I wanted to find out more about it. So I read around as much as I could. And, you know, I realised it was a complex story. This was a young man who... He had only ever played rugby since he was a child. He, he couldn't see anything else in his life apart from rugby. And what you don't realise if you don't speak to somebody who doesn't need 24-hour cares, it's not just a matter of being stuck in a wheelchair. It is a matter of combating daily infections and problems and kind of interventions. You know, I have two, I have a friend and I have a close relative who both require 24-hour care. And the issue of quality life looms very, quality of life looms very high in my thoughts because, you know, I know that one of them would not have wanted to be where she is now had she known how things were going to turn out. And so gradually my thoughts about this case changed. And you're I guess what I was you, I mean, to you're, do you're the parent of a son who was born deaf and who no, who's had a successful yeah, operation. Yeah, I, I have a deaf son, yeah. and um, you know, I, did I'm that change? Do you think that influenced your views in, in that para, in that prism? Only in that, when I wrote this book, I wanted people to see beyond the disability to the person, because the thing that drives me crazy is when people just go, "Oh, you've got a deaf son," and actually, he's just. That's an irrelevance yeah. as far as we're concerned. What he is is really funny and smart and... All the other things, you but know, the thing annoying that and all, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there was a bit of me that just wanted to... you know, and, and my friend who's seriously disabled, he is so much more than the wheelchair. Um, and I've been out with him loads of times and just the issues of stupid things that you wouldn't think about. Like if you sit at a table, 
thank God, we, you know, we all got him a wheelchair that elevates. So his head is on the same level as everybody else. But otherwise, you are always the person that looks up at everybody else. I think that's the thing that I didn't, I didn't realise. I think, I, you know, I'd kind of got my head around the sort of TV movie headline of, you know, somebody who's using a wheelchair. But then there was all the stuff about day-to-day. -day. You know, the, in, in the book, Lou decides to take him to take Will to the race course. Yes. And it's... it's it's hilarious, but it really shouldn't be because there's just it's just all these people who just don't understand the most simple things that mm. they could do to make people's lives much easier. But yeah. n nobody has that thought, and I had never had those thoughts until I read. Well, it's this really interesting. And when you cross over to the other side, you know, I was when I had a disabled child, I'd, I'd had two non-disabled children first, and you really are aware that it's kind of like a Rubicon that you cross, and mm. suddenly you are in the world of disability, which you're frankly not aware of and I you know I don't want to make this sound a worthy book this is my least worthy book ever in some <laughs> respects because actually I've never done kind of funny before and, and what and I really it is liked very is, funny. is the humor in, employed in it but um, it drives me crazy there's I think what I really like you talking about is the is the kind of the way different classes deal with disability do you want to talk about that at the end okay well there was this one scene where um, Will persuades Lou his carer because um, he basically tries to widen her world he he basically sees her as almost disabled well she has an issue with mobility doesn't she social mobility yeah she's she, kind of she lives a small town life. She's like a lot of the girls I grew up with where they basically don't ever end up outside their own postcode. They marry people within their postcode. They only t go to the same places. And um, he People who read Tatler do that as well, I'd just like to point out. <laughs> I'm sorry, deputy editor's there. She's very angry. Go on. He cannot bear the fact that she has all this kind of intelligence and quirkiness and she won't look beyond the realms of this small town that she's grown up in. Um, so he decides to kind of, in, in, in a way that she gets frankly irritated by because she says, you know, I'm not your bloody Eliza Doolittle. Um, she, he tries to get her to have new experiences and one of these is to go to a concert. Um, and she notices when they go into this concert hall that different classes have a different reaction to Will because um, the working classes where she lives just sort of go, what's wrong with you? Why can't you move? You know, just the children especially <laughs> just go, why aren't your hands working? And... Um, and yet, in the middle-class environs of this concert hall, she said there's like a kind of ripple that passes through the room where people are far too polite to actually look. There's just a little break in conversation and they just look sideways and then nobody talks about it because obviously that would be rude, but they do stare. Um, so it was just that... There's a lot of playing with the two classes. Of yeah. th this book, actually, the first scene I, I saw in it was a scene that comes at a kind of climactic moment of the book where Lou goes to Will's ex-girlfriend's wedding with him, which is, should be a disaster. And she decides that she's going to sit on his lap and slow dance with him on his wheelchair um, because she can't bear what she calls the pointy heads um, at this wedding. And he's kind of feeling reasonably robust. So the, the kind of he's the drunk. key scene... We he's drunk. Yeah, okay, yeah. they're both drunk. <laughs> so she sits on his lap, makes him go into the centre of this um, dance floor and dance with her, effectively. And he says, you know, are they appalled yet? And she says, they're so appalled. And, and he's <laughs> basically, the way, how she's sitting on him, he says to her, you would never let me that close to your breasts if I wasn't in a wheelchair. And she says to him, if, I wasn't in a, if you weren't in a wheelchair, you wouldn't even be looking at my breasts because I would be serving you and you would be looking at the blonde tall girls with the, um, who can sniff out an expense account at 20 paces. Yeah. And he basically says, well, yes, that's probably true. And so it's a sort of, I saw that scene and the book kind of came 
from there. From there. Um, yeah. It's a kind of real kind of pretty, pretty woman, pretty woman moment. You know that kind of you work on commission without yeah. the prostitution. Yeah, without no, the prostitution. No, there's no prostitution. <laughs> no, you did think of that was like issue tick box, post disability post. No, we won't go for prostitution. Um, so the the, 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 one, the tension and the real sort of tension in yeah. the novel comes from the fact that Lou finds out she overhears very early on that that Will wants to kill himself and yeah. that, that her contract that she's working on um, is timed to when he's going to go to Dignitas and kill himself. And and she, she kind of takes it on herself. There's a slightly blue peach aspect to it. She's like, well, I just, I've got to save him. I've got to save him. I've got to save him. That's before she has any kind of feelings for him. Yeah. Um, and it, th th that for me is the, the aspect of the story that draws me on most. And it's, and it's desperate. It becomes, as there are fewer and fewer and fewer pages in this book, more and more desperate because you think, what the fuck is going to happen? Mm. It's not clear. Did you know what was going to happen? I, I did when I first started writing it. I thought, I'm going to kill him. And then I got to the, I don't know. Did you, I love the way she said that. You can tell she's got a farm, can't you? I'm going to kill him. <laughs> going to kill him. Going to kill him. Going to kill him. I, well, that was, that was how I originally saw it, I thought. And then, you know, like lots of people went... No, okay, oh. okay. No, 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 this isn't a spoiler. This it's not a spoiler. spoiler. Then I got to two chapters before the end and I thought, I can't, I can't do it, you know. And, and believe me, I'm not saying this out of any kind of smugness because this doesn't happen very often in a book and believe me, I've written nine and it's really not happening at the moment at all. But I knew <laughs> these two characters from the start and, and well, I'm sure David will tell you, if you know the characters from the beginning... The, play, the way they play off each other becomes easy. So mm. it was actually an easy book to write. I knew them so clearly that every single thing that happened was easy. Yeah. And then I got to the point where he has to make this decision or she has you to have discover. To make the I have to make the decision. And I couldn't do it. And I rang up my agent and I said, I don't think I want to do this. I said, I've got this really interesting idea. Why don't we write a book with two endings? And then the readers can choose what they want. <gasps> Why and it would be really an interesting marketing idea. And she just went, don't be such a flipping wuss. Except she didn't say flipping. She didn't, did she? No. And, um, and she said, write the book the way you were going to write it. And so I had to just, well, I'm not going to do this. Well, I had to yeah. work out what I was going to do. And I have to say, I genuinely you know, was on the forks of your dilemma. I did not know. Um, until the end, what you were doing. I won't say what you did. Um, but I was very interested in all the kind of research that Lou does is obviously mm -hmm. research that you've done. So yeah. she, she tries to find ways to, to get well interested in life again. Um, and some of them are kind of a bit wacky, but she, she goes online and she finds these forums. And I'm guessing that you did that too, right? Yeah, well, so there's, like? there's a whole um, community of quadriplegics online. I mean, thank God for the internet because it has actually changed a lot of people's lives. But they are really funny, like very black humour. And, you know, the, the, there's no substitute for research. Every book I ever write, I, I either, you know, go and sit on an aircraft carrier or do whatever. But... Um, these quadriplegics, they tell you detail that you couldn't possibly get. For example, if you take a quadriplegic to the barbers, you must clean the wheels off afterwards because a lot clean of... Clean the wheels of what? Of hair. Okay. Because hairy wheels make you feel sick. And don't... I suppose they would. Yeah. And don't let your quadriplegic near drunk people because all drunk people want to do is either push your, your man in a wheelchair or kind of sit down and tell them why they're so sorry for him, which is frankly the, really the last thing you oh want to Jesus. hear. Um, so there's just all... And Paris is the worst city to go to if you're in a Full wheelchair. Stop. Full you, stop. You could have finished that sentence. Which, yeah. <laughs> Some, 
There was um, no need for the wheelchair. So, so when, 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 when you were online doing this research, did yeah. you identify yourself as Jojo Moy's novelist, lady novelist, um, an able-bodied no. person, or what, what, what did no, you I do? No, I just said that I was somebody who was researching. Right, I didn't okay. say who I was. Okay, um, okay. Those things come back to haunt you. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to ask you a wee quick bit about your next book. I know we're talking about this, but the next one's called The Girl You Left Behind. Do you want to talk okay, about that um, a wee bit? This is yeah. the book that you said you dumped how many thousands of words off? This 20? is my difficult second book. Um, it's, it's your tenth sort book. Of a decade in, basically. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I deleted... I, I handed in this book in July, and then I changed my mind and deleted half of it because I just... It wasn't good enough. And the thing that I have really discovered um, over the past couple of years is you cannot afford in the current publishing climate to put out not just the book that you think is good, but the book that you think is the best thing you've ever written. I wish more and people felt that way. I'm just going to say that now. John Crace agrees, I know he does, because he digests yeah. them anyway. I mean, this, you know, this is an easy read in a lot of respects, but I'm, I'm going to admit it, and I can say this because I've written lots of books that didn't work. This works. And sometimes you don't know whether something works until you've finished it, and then you realise that some weird alchemy has taken place. And if there's anyone here from Penguin, I'm going to get slaughtered. But the book that I've been writing wasn't working it just there's a kind of gel mechanism that just wasn't happening so i've deleted seventy thousand words and i calculated 70 did you say 70 well that's um that was at one go but i've just looked at my previous files a couple of days ago because i'm still writing <laughs> and i i have actually written th over three hundred thousand words of this book which will end up being one hundred and forty thousand words oh, um, Jesus. because that's like a massacre it, do you know it feels? Like I bet it did. <laughs> um, but it's getting it's it's been really interesting because this is easy to This has been proper hard work. You know, not going down a mine hard work, but in terms of just having to keep yeah. working and working. I haven't. One hundred and fifty thousand words is a lot. To that's like you know t twice twice the length of the yeah, book that well, I'm it's about it's to. It's three books. Through, you know, yeah. there were a lot of advances I missed out on, frankly. But um, I just uh, it has to be right. Uh, Okay, I'm going to take some questions okay. now. And of course, Sylvia's right there. Okay. Go for Hi, it. Hi, Sylvia. Hello. Um, Me Before You is, you know, it's a bestseller. What is it about Me Before You that you think has struck a chord with everyone? I mean, I think, kind of think you've touched on this already, but in summary, what, what is it about Me Before You you think that's made it the bestseller? It's as characters. It's the characters. Yeah, it, and it, your, your it investment in is. them. Uh, investment in them. I think doing some funny helped. I've never done funny before. She says, unable to even speak funnily. Um, but, uh, but it is genuinely really funny. It's sickly everyone, funny. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually lost count of the people who've tweeted me to say they're weeping on public transport, which is quite nice for me. Have you had any hassle from people? Have you had any people saying, well, you don't get it? Or, I had uh, one know. person who is a disability rights kind of person from the BBC who said she wasn't happy about the idea of the book. Mm -hmm. And then she messaged me afterwards saying she wanted to talk to me about it, but she was too emotional having just finished it. Oh. And then she's never got back in touch with me. So either she's planning to kill me or... Um, or herself, having or been inspired oh, by... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a couple more questions. <laughs> Uh, I saw I saw a hand over there, and I didn't know if it, maybe it was somebody scratching themselves. Oh, it's that man. It's John. It's the man who comes from Swindon. Yay! Yay! Okay. Mr. Okay.
I get. I mean, I can always answer that question for you. Why okay. did you choose a more physical partner than an emotional partner? It's actually because I told you to, isn't well, it? Well, <laughs> there is that, but also it's very difficult to read um, uh, to, to kind of talk about the rest of it without giving things away. Yeah. And what I, you know, what I was trying to do with that scene is just set the scene of you're you're in Will uh, Lou's shoes of that complete sense of oh my god, I'm out of my depth. When somebody, you know, you go into a situation. She has no idea what she's meant to be doing with these meds. She didn't particularly want this job. It's, I just wanted, to, you know, that sense of being out of it. And Damien told me to. And I told you that. And I want to just say very quickly about Lou. She is not a cipher for exploring <laughs> issues. She has her own story. And it's quite a dark story and not the story mm. that I thought she would have. And that's, you know, that was the, that was the first time I cried. Okay. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Oh, well, I can just... That yeah. came from somebody I knew as well. Did it? Um, and I knew her for many years. Um, not uh, that I kind she of bastardised somebody else's story. No, people never do if you change it enough. But I was really interested in the issue of... Yeah. I can't say anything No, you else can't now, say anything can else. Okay. No, you can't. I'll take one more question, and then we're done, so make it a good one. I'm scanning the room. I'm going around. I'm going around. In that case... Oh, there's... Oh, okay, two. Oh, uh, one... Okay, she said... You go ahead. Yes, what made you choose to write it in the first person and did you always know whose story um, it was? I, it was partly because I always knew this book was going to be a tough call and it's quite a tough thing to ask the reader to want to be invested in and so I, I kind of wanted to strip away as many barriers for people to get involved with the story as possible. So A, I wanted to make it, I, I wanted to write it in a way that was kind of as straightforward and, and in kind of everyday language as possible and I wanted you to be in, in Lou's shoes so that from the first moment when, you you know, when she loses her job, you're kind of with her rather than seeing her from a distance. Have the um, have the film or telly rights gone yet? Um, not yet, but it's sold in America and various other territories already. So, yeah. That seems a good note on which to congratulate you and thank you, Jojo Moyes. Thank you.